You are listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast, or your podcast for all things grimdark. I'm your host, Rob Mathini. And I'm Philip Overby. Today, it's our interview with Mazarkus Williams, the author of the Tower and Knife trilogy. Very cool for Maz to come on the show. We had a great conversation about writing fantasy. We talked about uh, the pseudonym that Mazarkus uses. We talked about a lot of cool stuff, and very cool for uh, Maz to come on the show. Yes, so enjoy the interview and stay tuned at the end for some extra awesomeness. Our guest today hails from Flint, Michigan. As a writer of fantasy fiction, our guest is the author of the Tower and Knife trilogy, published by Joe Fletcher Books in the UK and Nightshade Books slash Skyhorse in the US. Book one, The Emperor's Knife, was released in December of 2011, followed by the release of book two, Knife Sworn, about a year later, and book three, The Tower Broken, completing the series in June of last year. The series was published under a pseudonym for multiple reasons, but until today, the actual gender of today's guest has been an issue of debate and speculation. Uh, With roots both in the U.S. and in the U.K., our guest has degrees in both history and physics, in addition to a burning passion for tabletop gaming, cooking, Joss Whedon, Cats, 70s Punk, and of course, writing fiction of the speculative variety. Skyping in from the desolate outskirts of Boston, Massachusetts, for the first time ever on a podcast, we welcome Mazarkus Williams to the show. Maz, thanks for hanging out. Thank you. We're glad to have you on the show today. It's uh, We've been looking forward to this for a month or two, and we definitely want to talk about your, your epic fantasy trilogy uh we want to talk about writing and and talk about a few aspects of your career today so we're excited to get you on the show and uh, and definitely want to uh dive into all these uh nerdy awesome topics today to begin with uh for folks who are not familiar with the tower and knife trilogy go ahead and tell us about your series it starts out in a very sort of small situation with a prince who is trapped in a small room in a tower so the scope of it is extremely small to begin with and it grows into um, a story with world consequences so it it keeps expanding and expanding from that tiny little moment in the beginning when he is pacing his tiny room it's a lot about a lot of emotional things like longing and grief but it's also about you know crazy fantastical elements like, you know, pattern magic and elemental magic and um, various things like that. And it, it grows from a very uh, sort of personal moment into this sort of epic story. That's and not enough, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good start to dive into. I mean, it is, a, it is three books long, so that's quite a sprawling tale for folks to get into. Now, you did utilize patterns um, as yes. a part of the uh, as a part of the uh, story, what inspired you to to use patterns uh, in in your trilogy? I just figure if you're trapped in this little room, I know that even if I'm not trapped in a room and I'm staring at wallpaper or curtains or anything like that, I will find a pattern. And I think the human mind is programmed to look for a pattern in the things that we look at, and that's what the Sarman sees. And at first, you can just say, well, you know, he's been staring at those you know, those things that are written on the wall for so long that he imagines that he sees patterns. But in fact, those turn out to be actual real patterns that he's seeing that actually have magical effects. Yeah, I know when I was when I was younger, I used to stare at the wall a lot. Yeah. And uh, I would always see little little faces and and stuff. Yeah, I think that's like I think think that's part of um, 
uh, I forget what this phenomenon is called, but it's like the human brain puts faces on things that may not actually have faces. I like that idea of uh, there being more to it, you know, than just your mind playing tricks on you. There's actually a magical element to that. So I like that idea. In the overall scope of your story, would you say you have a, a high use of, say, fantastic elements versus realism? Or would you say your fantasy is more of a, a realistic approach to the genre? I have a little problem when people start talking about realistic fantasy or historical fantasy because I feel that fantasy is neither, obviously, since there's magic. But I would probably say that it's more fantastical than real. I mean, there, I think the important thing in a fantasy book is not to make it real in terms of our everyday life, but to make it believable. You know, are these people real people with real hopes and desires and fears? And, you know, can you imagine where they're living in a very concrete way? You know, if, if it's real to the readers, believable to the readers, then I think that's real enough. What, what is your feeling as grimdark as a uh, as a genre? Because I know people have mixed feelings about it. Some people think it's kind of a fad or and other people kind of want to see it stick around. What are, what are your personal feelings about the idea of grimdark? I have a lot of trouble with all of these different subgenres that we have now, and in Grimdark being one of them, I feel that I have trouble identifying exactly what they are. I was surprised when I was classified by some people as Grimdark, and Teresa Frohawk was classified by some people as Grimdark and some people by not Grimdark, and, you know, it's all very confusing to me, but I feel that books that address certain um, emotions or needs or, or imaginations of, of a large group of people will be successful and it will continue to be successful whether or not a fad has gone in or out of style. So um, I think that there will continue to be grimdark books or books that people continue to consider to be grimdark books for a long time. I think before the term grimdark came around, there were people that liked certain kinds of books like I don't I think when Joe Abercrombie first started writing and uh, Mark Lawrence I don't think the term existed and I think it kind of seemed to come out of their writing a lot it did which surprised me because I think if you're going for what some people seem to think is grimdark is just sort of hopelessness and I think George R. R. Martin is kind of the king of hopelessness <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure but maybe it wasn't a word until the Joe Abercrombie Mark Lawrence moment there well, I used to think I used to think G R R M just meant grim, yeah. <laughs> like like not like not George R R Martin, just grim. I would say grim. Right. Yeah, he's pretty fucking grim. I have to say. And then you've described your approach to fiction as more character driven in, in your stories. What is it about uh, character driven fiction that that appeals to you? Well, I feel at least in fantasy. That well, actually, in all books, you know, you know where the plot is going to go. There's going to be rising tension. There's going to be climax. There's going to be resolution. I mean, I'm, it's obviously they take many different paths along there to get to those points. But you know where the story is going. You know that it's building excitement and things are going to happen. And so I focus more on, you know, what does it mean to the characters? Um, how do the characters develop? You know, what is their internal climax? In their resolution and I guess that just adds to the story for me you know there, I've read stories where the characters were just tools of the plot and I really didn't like those very much I suppose probably nobody really likes those ones so much because you can hardly tell the characters apart but yeah I definitely like fully formed characters with you know that are very believable as real people 
Who are some of your favorite uh, characters that you've you've seen throughout fantasy fiction as you've been reading over the years? Um, well, Fitz Chivalry, Farseer, Verity Farseer. I can't remember the name of the woman in the Rosemary Kirstein books, but the uh, this dearest woman in that series of books. I love the main character in Carol Berg's book called Transformation. Yeah, all of these characters I'm naming um, go through their own transformations during the course of the story, which is, you know, what I love. I love Tyrion Lannister, though, and he hasn't really changed much. I suppose he's gotten angrier, but... <laughs> Yeah, he's one that hasn't really, but he's a great character. Yeah, I think Tyrion's kind of uh, gone through the ringer in like so many different ways. So he's one of, uh, I think, I think readers in some ways like to see characters suffer. And I think he's mm-hmm. suffered, but he's he's kind of taken it in stride, I think. You know, every time he's in a situation where he's going to get thrown out the sky window or whatever that, whatever it's called, moon door, not sky moon window, door. sorry, <laughs> sky window. I'm calling it Sky Window from now on. <laughs> um, and, or like he's he's locked in a dungeon or whatever. He's always, oh, well, I'm going to die. One show I really like now is called uh, Orange is the New Black. Have you have you watched that show at all? I haven't watched the latest season, but I've watched the other seasons. As I was reading some of your first book, I was thinking I was thinking about prison. What what would be scarier to you, being in a modern day prison or being in a, some kind of prison in a fantasy world? I think I would go for the fantasy prison because I would have hopes that some by some magical means I might escape. Whereas <laughs> here in a real prison, probably not. Uh, now, Phil, if you were in a magical prison, what would your prison name be? <laughs> uh, prison name? Yeah, we need a good one for you. Uh, fluffy steam cake. <laughs> I'm writing that down, by the way. Fluffy steam cake, that is. Fluffy steam cake sounds like it's easy to break out of, so I can just punch <laughs> That's true. Punch a hole through the wall and get out. With your unicorn. Yeah, right off in, with my unicorn. <laughs> so, Maz, when you published your books, you published under a pseudonym. There's some reasons that, you know, publishers will go with a pseudonym. In the fantasy genre, I think uh, sales slant towards um, males. Now, why isn't really what we're going to discuss, but more of the how um, you, you implemented the the pseudonym. Now, was Mazarkas Williams the initial name that you came up with, or did you have anything else in mind? No. Um, well, first of all, the it was the publisher who... Um, came up with the pseudonym and it wasn't necessarily in my control but um the original pseudonym was a female name but eventually a a sort of a gender neutral name was was chosen how has it gone for you since you've released under this sort of general neutral moniker has has, do you think it's been received well or Yes, in some ways. I I feel like it's been fun being mysterious and having nobody know what's going on with it. But there have been some drawbacks. Um, You can't really go to a conference and say who you are. You can't have your photograph anywhere. You can't, um, you know, I can't go around and do book signings or anything like that because it was supposed to be top secret. So there have been some hindrances. But on the other hand, it's been fun to um, observe the difference in the way people treat me based on what gender they think I am. People think I'm funnier. They think I'm a man. They pay more attention to what I say. They think I'm a man, especially, and this is really unfortunate when it comes to women's issues. If I go in and I stand up for women and everyone thinks I'm a man, they're like, oh, that's great. That's great that you say that. At first, I was confused because 
And all these people were saying, oh, you're so great for saying that. You're so great for saying that. And I'm thinking, what? But then I realized they think I'm a man. And they think that I'm a man standing up for women. And I think that's, you know, so much greater than a woman standing up for women. <laughs> so there's that, you know. And, you know, people give me way more leeway. They think I'm funnier than I am and smarter than I am and all kinds of stuff. As opposed to my real life where people know I'm a woman and, you know, they it's just subtly different. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, we can all say in usual conversation that, you know, gender really doesn't matter to me in any regards. Yes. But the truth is when gender is really in question, the, the truth comes out and you kind of the, the cracks begin to show a little bit. That is true. Would you say there's any sort of message that you hope to convey in, in utilizing a, a, a genderless name? And, and if so, what would that message be? Well, that gender is not important. I would hope that people would realize how unimportant it is in terms of what a woman can offer you to read versus what a man can offer you to read. It's these prejudices that we have about, you know, women can't write male characters or men can't write female characters or whatever are almost completely baseless. And uh, we just need to get past it. And I've liked that people have had to evaluate my writing with absolutely no context as to my gender. I know as a as a man, I've written female characters and often wondered and uh, I've went on forums and and people talk about this a lot, that they're worried about writing someone of a different gender wrong or someone of a different race wrong or someone of a different background in a wrong way. This seems to be a big concern, especially for uh, writers starting off. Is there any kind of advice you could give to people to leave their worries about these kind of issues or is is there a solution to dealing with, with these kind of worries i don't think there's any kind of solution that i could briefly summarize as far as that goes but i think that people should be worried about it and if you're a man writing a woman or you're a white person who wants to write a black person or whatever it is you should really do your research you should listen to women you should listen to people of color whatever it is that you know if you're writing about another culture whatever it is, um, listen and learn as much as you can before you even begin the attempt, because it's, it's not easy. I mean, obviously, as writers, we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And I've done that. I don't know if I've done it adequately. But, you know, and, and that's part of what writers do. So you can't take that away from them. But at the same time, you have to really be sure of where you're going. So I think in a way, fantasy writers kind of get off easy a little bit, because it's obviously a fantasy world. And it's sort of removed from our own social construct. But at the same time, you just, you know, if you're going to add in elements of our social construct and then leave out others, it creates problems. So, yeah, I think it's important to be aware of, of these things. But I think at the same time, this kind of thing paralyzes certain kinds of writers from wanting to write these kind of characters because they're afraid mm -hmm. of misrepresenting them. Um, doing research, obviously, is very important to develop these characters. H has there been any kind of things you've researched for a story that you never kind of imagined you would research, like some crazy shit that you saw on the Internet or you read in a book and you were like, wow, yes. that's crazy. I need to put that in a book. <laughs> I've seen so many things that I've thought, oh, my God, I need to put in that in a book. But unfortunately, I didn't write them all down. I've forgotten probably more than I've remembered. Uh, but I have looked up um, ancient sewer systems, how to heal a broken bone with ancient medicine, just all kinds of, I don't know, I feel like sometimes some of my search terms, I'm thinking the FBI must be watching. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely imagine your, your history studies have played a background in your writing as well. 
Yes, definitely. And in fact, the beginning of uh, The Emperor's Knife, I got that from reading about a uh, prince in the Ottoman Empire who'd been imprisoned uh, most of his life in, because his brother was childless. Eventually, he became the emperor himself, but he was completely mad and was eventually just killed by the court. Fortunately, that doesn't happen to, to my main character. <laughs> <laughs> I love how history does that. It's just like, it sounds like a good story, and then it's like, oh, he went crazy and died. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, you just want to use elements of the story. You don't want to live the entire story. <laughs> what would you say your favorite uh, time period in history is to, to study? I really love the Renaissance, uh, but I also love the early 20th century in America. I love sort of the Enlightenment era and a little bit beyond. I love reading about the Ottoman Empire. I love reading about Byzantium. There's lots of different eras that I might mark as my favorite. And of course, of course, I can't forget, I love the pirate era. I have probably 15 to 20 books on pirates. I had always meant to write a book about pirates, and then Pirates of the Caribbean came out, and that kind of foiled things up for me, and I still haven't really got my book on pirates finished. But <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was the only person with a brilliant idea to write about pirates. But <laughs> I saw on Reddit that you have a, a zombie sex knife fighting book. You've been brainstorming for a while and there's steamships and stone golems. Yeah, I kind of make up the zombie <laughs> sex knife fighting parts. I, I thought of those as elements of popular books that I thought if I put all those things together in one book, I would have a bestseller. <laughs> but there's, there's actually no zombies in my book. <laughs> it is, it's golems and um, spirits. You could sneak in a zombie knife fight somewhere in there i could just to to make the title accurate zombie <laughs> in there <laughs> so if you wrote a zombie sex knife fighting book what kind of book would it be well it wouldn't be you know i have to be specific every time that it's not zombie sex it's zombie comma sex <laughs> yeah, zomb- <laughs> oh, okay. yeah sorry sorry not zombie sex zombies <laughs> comma sex <laughs> Knife fighting. <laughs> yes, right. Um, well, it would be exactly that. It would be people who are busy fighting zombies, but also have time for sex. Oh, and they, of course, they fight the zombies with knives, which is the knife fighting part. But they also have time to recreate later. So um, okay. that's probably how I'd go about it. Is there any plan to do the steamship stone golem novel soon? Yeah, uh, that's, that's the one that's in process. Um, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's uh, the, there's a shipwreck. The steamship's not in it for very long because it sinks. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, <okay>. then um, <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> spoiler <laughs> no, that's chapter one so i don't think that's too much of a spoiler alert um and then the, the people who survive start having to cross country to get to uh, a location where they think they can find aid so and oh, there's okay. the technology level is weird to me and i'm still trying to figure it out because they have ways to absorb solar power because solar power can be portable and light. And so in their world, they do have the technology for that. But anything that requires a lot of infrastructure, like nuclear power or anything like that, they don't have. And so I've been slowly trying to figure out what technologies they do have and what technologies they don't have in the story. Well, you've talked about before about how you can use photography 
to influence your writing and how you can actually look at a picture and sort of extract a narrative from a photograph. Tell me about that process, how you can look at a picture and kind of uh, think of a story just by looking at it. This is great. I had this great professor at Northwestern who sort of taught me how to look at photographs or historical photographs anyway. You start out with just what's in the image. What do I see in the image? And that's a very basic first level of a photograph. You know, you see what they're wearing, you see what they're doing, you see what's behind them, the setting, and that's one historical layer. And then you start thinking, well, what's not in the picture, what's not included, you know, and that's another layer. And then you begin to think about, from the photographer's point of view, why he took that picture, why he set it up the way he did. Who is he taking the picture for? Is he taking a picture for the government? Is he taking a picture for a magazine? Is he taking a picture as an artist? And all of these different layers of history to look at in terms of just one photograph. So, you know, the story can be the photographer who's working for a magazine who takes a picture of, you know, some guy and then the guy gets shot right afterwards, whatever, you know, but you can just (laughs) (laughs) interpret the photograph in so many different ways instead of just saying, oh, look, it's a picture of a World War One guy sitting in front of a tent. You know, there's lots more questions than just that if you want to really analyze the photo. Yeah, I remember uh, I, I was looking at pictures one time and there was a boy and he was on a sled. For whatever reason, I thought, there's a vampire in the woods. <laughs> I had no idea why that's what I pictured when I just, it was just a boy on a sled. And I was like, eh, there's a vampire out there. Yeah, there's got to be Stalk, something scary. It's <laughs> boring to have a boy on a sled. There's got to be the vampire in the woods. <laughs> I love that idea. For me, it's like I look at pictures that are mundane and I try to think, how can I make this weird or how can I make this darker or whatever? And maybe the opposite, if you have a dark picture, a picture that looks really dark and think about, okay, where, where's the hope in this picture? Or where's the light in the picture or whatever? Like those creepy Victorian photographs that have the mother and the father and the dead child in between. Yeah. Try to look for the, the hope and the light in that photograph. Yeah, there's a, there's a book called Wisconsin Death Trip that I bought years ago. It had all these horrible articles about people wandering off into the woods and dying and all this kind of stuff. And it's like... <laughs> Wow, this is really depressing. <laughs> it's really depressing. But it's really, it was really interesting also just to see all these photos of these, you know, road hard kind of people and their experiences and how different it is for us now in the modern oh, yeah. world. Oh, yeah. Walk a mile, get your water, walk it all the way back. People worked all day long on their feet, rough work, dangers, freezing to death, and just all kinds of dangers from animals, from the cold, from the heat, from the bad harvest, just anything. In addition to utilizing, say, photography and history to inspire Mm -hmm. storytelling, you also have a history of utilizing writing groups. And not only were you in a writing group, but you were also in a writing group with Papa Mark, Mark Lawrence, Prince of Thorns. Can you tell us about your your experience with a writing group and kind of how it helped you to craft your stories? It was great because the ability to just throw a few paragraphs up there and say, do these grab you? Do these not grab you? And people responding in various ways. It not only taught me what kind of writing works best, but it also taught me what kind of criticism to ignore. Not to be saying that people gave me bad criticism, but you know, there are some types of criticism that are based on personal taste that, you know, I can just safely say they're not my audience. I'm, you know, I know who I'm writing to now and I'm looking for this specific type of reaction. I'm not getting it from anybody, therefore I failed, or I'm getting it from only half the people, therefore I think I succeeded. 
you know, because you just sometimes feel somebody doesn't like something and they can't really articulate why it's because something is wrong with your writing. They're not able to exactly tell you what's wrong with your writing, but there is something wrong with your writing. And that's one way to, to sort of um, interpret criticism because they're going to tell you this is what's wrong with it, but they're not exactly right. And it's up to me to say, oh, you know, I, I see what they're saying, but what I actually need to do is this. So there, there's the criticism that, that I've learned to sort of ignore and then the criticism that I've learned to interpret and then the criticism that is usually right on point. For example, anything that Mark tells me that I, things that I need to change. So Yeah, he can write. He's, he's got some... some some ability, I would say. Um, uh, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, would you say that the process has helped you to give um, objective critiques as well? Yeah, I actually think that's one of my talents is that I'm a pretty good editor. And so I'm good at saying this is, you know, you don't need to go on about this. There's too much there. There's, I, I think it, I'm actually pretty good at that. And I've often said that I think I may be a better editor than I am a writer. Mm, interesting. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's been good. I think even people who, who I know don't like me, I think I've been able to objectively go through their work and say, this was good. This didn't work. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know if they appreciated it because they didn't like me, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I like critiquing people I don't like more because then i could be like yeah this sucked and then this sucked <laughs> no, just kidding i would never i would never tell anybody it i think in a writing group you know there's sort of an uh an unspoken contract that you're going to be honest even if you don't like the person the person totally gets on your nerves you're still going to be honest about what they've written because that's the that's the contract I think I've given criticism sometimes that maybe rubbed somebody the wrong way. And there's been issues with those kind of things. And you, you try to avoid them as much as mm -hmm. you can and try to be as sensitive as possible. But there's some people that like a harsher critique style. And there's some people that like a more tiptoe through the tulips kind of uh, critique yeah. style. I, I guess I'm kind of in the middle. I don't I don't think I'm too harsh, but I'm not I'm not patting people on the head either. Oh, yeah, you did Hi. great. You read a story. Good for you. <laughs> I think that's pretty much where I am. I usually try to start off a critique saying, well, this is what I really enjoyed. This is what I, where I think your strengths are. And then I sort of go into, oh, there's too much of this. There's too much of that. You know, I'm confused here. This isn't clear. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if it's someone I know really well, I'll just, I won't even bother with the, oh, this was so good. I'll just get right into the, you know, this is wrong. This is bad. <laughs> Depending on how well I know the person. <laughs> this is crap. This is crap. I think Mark once actually said to me, um, you're better than this. Oh. Which was, ouch. <laughs> yeah. We use that for Phil in the future. You're better than this, Phil. Yes. You're better. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how I'll respond to that. I may I may I may cry or something. Despite my hard exterior, I am quite sensitive person. So I see. You wear your heart on your sleeve. <laughs> yeah. Would you say that uh, personally? Do you think the the writing group has maybe been very beneficial? Would you recommend writing groups for uh, beginning writers out there? Sure, but I I would sort of uh, treat the writing group as a way to find your ideal writing um, pals. Because now that I've been in the writing group, I've been in the writing group for like 15 years and I don't really pay any attention to it anymore. But I've got my group of people from that writing group that I stay in touch with who I always send something that I've written and say, you know, what do you think? And they'll always get back to me and always be honest with me. And that's invaluable. So I say, yes, go into a writing group. But if you find, you know, three to five people that you get that relationship with, you don't really need to be in the writing group anymore. Yeah, I think I found that myself. Uh, I found 
several partners in writing groups, but then ended up migrating away from the writing group and still keeping those partners kind of individually. Mm-hmm. You know, after being published, I also picked up a couple more fellow Nightshade authors who I had that relationship with as well. And you did mention after being published that there were a couple surprises to you when you uh, first had your name out there. And one of those being was kind of the beast it was to tackle the marketing and promotion. Tell us about your experience and, and kind of how, how that lesson played out for you. Well, yeah, I wouldn't even say that I realized that there was a beast to, to tackle at first. I was just blithely going along. Um, I guess I kind of thought that the publishing houses were going to advertise my book and do all of that and have a website for me. And just I was really I had no idea. And nobody said anything to me. I'm not blaming the publishers, but, you know, it was all on me because I didn't do any research. Uh, I just kept thinking, you know, how come this isn't happening? How come that isn't happening? And then then I realized, it, you know, because I wasn't doing it. So and then 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 you see the beast, you see this huge mountain of you know, I've got to get out there, I've got to blog, I've got to try to get on other people's blogs, I've got to try to do all these things and at the same time keep my gender a mystery. So it it was kind of, huh, I wish that I had been more prepared. And But my advice, in fact, a newbie author contacted me the other day and he said, well, my publishing house isn't really doing much to market me, you know, advice. And I said, well, I'm not sure any publishing house can <laughs> really do any marketing except for their biggest authors. So, you know, you know, if, if it's really extreme, then maybe you don't want to stay with that publishing house. But, you know, otherwise, just be aware that that's just how it is. And, you know, I think that would be the, my advice then to authors is that to get that public presence out even before you're published. And I can imagine that's frustrating to have your book series debut and then realize that there's a, a, a pretty heavy marketing promotion piece and then throw on top of that the gender neutrality as well just to skew the process even more, I imagine, was kind of frustrating. It was. And, and it was. I was mostly frustrated with myself for not getting out there and not you know hitting the, the pavement running because if your book doesn't sell a lot in the first few weeks or months – you know, it's it's the chances for it, like, picking up later are pretty low. I know that George R. R. Martin, his book didn't sell very well at first, but, I mean, what you want to say, quote, very well. I'm not sure. It might have sold lots more than the average book at first anyway, but it wasn't huge right away. But I don't know if that really happens to a lot of people. So you really have to hit the ground running when your book comes out. And I didn't do that. I think we have one more topic that we need to dive into before we, we wrap this conversation up, and that is gaming specifically mm. tabletop gaming. Cause, Which I was just doing last night. Yeah, I've heard you're kind of into it, kind of a fan. Now, you are not a typical average everyday tabletop gamer. You don't you do not do the D&D thing. You do the Role Master thing. For folks who aren't hip to Role Master, what exactly is Role Master? It is uh, very much like D&D. It's got rule books and spell books and everything like that, except it has way more charts and way more possibilities. Rollmaster is D100. There are so many different outcomes based on what percentage you roll in, in terms of like if you're trying to knit a sweater or if you're trying to stab someone in the heart, you have to roll it and each result is split up among probably five percentage points, like 67 to 72, uh, you succeed in knitting your sweater, you know, 03 to 08, you know, you completely fail, you've broken your yarn, you've broken your needles, you know, <laughs> just every result possible is represented, uh, which is kind of 
I guess you could argue that leaves the dungeon master without much creativity, but you know, you can fudge. The dungeon master can do whatever he wants. He can fudge it. And it's just crazy. They call it chart master because of all the charts and because <laughs> of all the rolling that's involved. But it's fun. I mean, you can have a mage who fights. It just costs more development points, but there are no limitations on what you can do with your character. And my favorite type of character is sort of a, someone who has a lot of lore. So I have a bard and I have a scholar, but my scholar can fight. What does your scholar fight with? Does he just punch people or he's got a weapon? Well, he can use a bow, but he has a polearm. And what he does is he's really good at mounted combat because he was raised by this nomadic tribe that rides horses. So he's really good at riding horses in mounted combat, weirdly, for a scholar. But he also can just, you know, wield his polearm standing there. So um, so I get to stand behind everybody and and hit people with my huge polearm. Now, are you usually uh, playing a character, or do you DM as well? I do DM. We take turns DMing. Right now is not my turn, but we do have different areas of the world where we're in charge and other people are not in charge. And so that way, you know, it's still a mystery to the other people who DM so that they're in your adventure. They don't already know everything. So right now, my friend Vinny is, is DMing, and we are way far away from my part of the world. I've always been interested in uh, in D and D and and how it reflects on who we are creatively and mm. makes us think about what we would be if we were in that situation, if we were that character or whatever the case may be. Now we had um, writer and swordmaster and Celtic whistle player Sebastian D. Castell was on our show uh, recently mm. and. He knows a lot about sword fighting and all this kind of stuff. Are you trained in any kind of weapon at all in real life? <laughs> no, not at all. If you could train, what would you train in? Archery. I really love um, archery. I have books on like how to fletch arrows and how to how to make bows from scratch. I mean, I have all these weird books about archery, but I have never actually, except for at Renaissance fairs, actually fired an arrow. So, yeah, we talk about it all the time about joining an archery club and getting bows, but we never get around to it. That sounds cool to have like an archery club and just go shoot bows with your <laughs> with your friends. Yeah, there's a couple in the Boston area that is actually an archery club. Because, you know, we're very densely populated here. I couldn't go off shooting a bow in my backyard. I'd probably hit somebody. So. <laughs> and your, your current Rollmaster campaign has been going on for how long? Uh, probably about 19. It was, yeah, it was about 19 years, 19, 20 years now. And we've had some people come and go. We've got the hardcore group that have always been there or mostly always been there. And then we've had people who have come and gone. So it's been quite a long time. We have one person who was in our group at the beginning, and then he moved to Indiana, and then he moved to Florida, and then he came back to Boston and rejoined. And <laughs> so, and then, you because know, it's twenty years. <laughs> so yeah, we've he, had. A long he couldn't time. stay away from the group. He wanted. That's to right. He had to come back. back. Nothing, I, nothing else is like having a regular gaming group. Yeah, imagine several characters have died over the course of, of this. I know my first character, when he died, uh, I, I actually got emotional. I was like, man, I spent, hour, I spent hours on this. <laughs> there used to be a website. I don't know if it's still in existence, but there used to be a website that was like a memorial ground for everybody's deceased gaming characters. And uh, you, could, you could enter the story of how your character died. <laughs> and then you get a little gravestone. <laughs> Here lies Fluffy Steamcake. I got spoiled because my first character who died was actually resurrected at great cost, but was resurrected. How did your character die? Um, she was in, she was a mage, is a mage, and she was in, 
she walked stupidly forward into a crypt, was immediately surrounded by first-level ghouls, which, you know, one-on-one, she could easily, no problem, but there was, like, 30 of them. Ooh. And she got eaten. Oh, all right. Yeah, so... <laughs> That sucks. But then another character thrust this extremely expensive magical item into his uh, brazier and vowed to like spend the next however many years of his life in service to this fire god and got two of us back to life. And that was how I got resurrected. Well, that's a happy ending then. They they joined the they joined with the fire god and he got you resurrected. All right. It kind of took that that character who made the sacrifice. It kind of took him out of the game, uh, and Ah. he had to end up playing a different character. But is there any end in sight for this campaign? Is it going to come to a close at some point soon, or is it going to go another twenty years? You think? Oh yeah, we're we're kind of hoping to all get into the same old folks' home so that you know we can continue to play. (laughs) And historically, we give out such little amounts of experience that we've been playing for 20 years and we started to realize my character only just hit level 10 and we've been playing for like 15 years, 15 years, whatever. And so we started to vocally say, okay, this is really ridiculous. We should be way more powerful at this point. So then we all agreed as GMs that we were going to start giving out lots more experience points. And we have been. So all of a sudden we have 17th level, 20th level characters, which we're not accustomed to at all after 20 years. Um, <laughs> and we st- it's hard to remember all these cool spells that we have now because we're going up levels so much faster than we used to. I mean, I would be the same level for two years. Wow. Before, and now up like every three and four months. So I'm having trouble keeping track of all of my abilities because I'm getting old and my memory's fading. <laughs> and <laughs> constantly flipping through my book. Wait a minute, what spells do I have? What spells do I have? I'm super cool. I'm pretty sure I'm super cool, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> that must be cool to have the chart for spells. I, I, I imagine that chart must be really impressive with all the different spell effects or w- whatnot yeah. on it. Anything from like, oh, you singed his his tunic to you melted his face, you know, it can be all kinds of cool stuff. And there's so many different spells. I mean, I don't know about D&D how many spells there are, but, you know, if you're a mentalist or an essence user or a channeling user or an arcanist, there's a whole host of different spells you can have based on what your profession is and all the, the charts that are involved. Very cool. Well, folks, if they want to pick up the Tower and Knife trilogy... Of course, it's on Amazon, so folks can go on there, buy the whole trilogy, read it. And you do have a short story coming out in the new Unbound anthology as well. So watch out for that uh, Unbound coming out from Grimoke Press, forthcoming here shortly. Mazarkis, thanks so much for honoring us with your time and company. It's been a wonderful, awesome conversation, and we just appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for asking me. So that concludes our interview with Mazarkas Williams. We're very glad to have Mazarkas on the show for her very first podcast. And uh, we wish her lots of luck in the future. Make sure to go read the Tower and Knife trilogy. It was very cool for Maz to hang out with us. And that crosses off another name on our Unbound Author Pokemon Gotta Catch Em All challenge that we're doing. Uh, it is our goal to have every single author that will be featured in the new Unbound Anthology. Uh, Mazarkis is one of those names on the list. Be sure to check out that anthology that drops December 1st. And the new series is in the works for Mazarkis, and uh, hopefully we'll have more news on that in the future. And as always, make sure to check us out on Facebook.com slash The Grim Tidings Podcast. That's Facebook.com slash The Grim Tidings Podcast. Or send us a tweet. We are on Twitter at 
Grimdark Fiction. Tweet, retweet, quote, tweet. Send us all kinds of tweets, and be sure to download us on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, please share it and leave a review. And our next episode features Chris Fox, author of the new novel Vampires Don't Sparkle. He's also written a couple of books on writing and is very prolific when it comes to self-publishing. So be sure to check that out. Yes, and until next time, remember everyone, stay grim, stay dark, stay true, and keep the horns up. Ching, 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 ching.